Welcome to the third round of Market Thinkers. As per usual, I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith. Welcome, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. And today's guest, uh, Drew will introduce more formally, is Dushko from First Centia. Welcome, Dushko. Thank you, and hello to all. In uh, previous sessions, we've covered interesting investment managers. We've then went on to themes. In this series, we're going to cover something that's closer to our heart, which is retirement. And uh, essentially, this series is dedicated to retirement and various elements of retirement and uh, what we think it takes to be successful as a retiree. the session, this session is something that's close to our hearts. At Waddle Partners, we've always talked about this concept, really simple concept, but um, income plus growth equals, uh, or I plus G equals R, essentially income plus growth equals total return. Really simple elements, but a lot of retirees focus just on the I, forget the G, and essentially have a portfolio that doesn't allow, doesn't grow over the 30 years of their retirement. And uh, there's no one essentially better in the world to speak to than a growth manager from First Centia. Um, being Dushko. So, uh, Drew, do you want to do the more the, the, the formalities of introducing Dushko and then we can start through um, this podcast? Thanks, Jamie. Um, yeah, the idea for this one came out, I think, through a meeting with Dushko, our first meeting with Dushko last year between lockdown two and three or one and two. It might have been between one three and two. Three four, who knows? Um, yeah, I think we, as people know, we meet hundreds of fund managers, investors, economists every year, and very few kind of stand out. Um, no offence to any others that listen. Um, but Dushko, the, the moment we kind of met him and sat in his room, uh, I sat in the room with him, he kind of stood out in a number of different ways to us. One was that kind of understanding and uh, the dedication to growth investing, but also we had some discussions around the psychological aspect of both investing and management of large ASX listed companies. So um, Dushko's head of Australian equities at First Centia, so manages the team that that um, manages the multiple strategies. I think you can expand on that a bit more, small caps, large caps. Uh, I think you have an income strategy too, which <laughs> not the topic for this one, but um, just expanding on on Jamie's introduction, the, you know, Franken Credit's in, in my view and our experience have kind of tilted the flow of capital uh, somewhat in in Australian companies that you know the companies paying the biggest dividends tend to get the most capital which has created what we see as a, an obsession with income with a lot of retirees and also a home bias where people are afraid to invest overseas or into other sectors so um, in our experience ignoring growth means you get less efficient results and uh, kind of cap your return potential and maybe that's a good challenging question for Dushko, to start with, are we are we too focused on income as as Australian investors? Great starting point, and thanks to everyone for uh, the uh, opportunity to chat to on uh, all these great topics. Uh, I think we are, and I think the biggest issue is even when we do think about income, we we think about it in isolation from growth, whereas the two are quite related to each other, and. I like to use the example of real world example of um, comparing Telstra and REA Group to bring this point home um, and most clearly. So, if we go back a dozen years and we transport ourselves to just after the GFC, and we're talking January 2009. I noticed REA is in the top 20 ASX stocks now, isn't it? 
Ah, uh, it may well have cracked. No, yes, I think it has cracked through. You're right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, it's spot, spot on. So if we cast our minds back to January 2009, Telstra share price $3.80. REA Group share price $3.60. Okay, and when I'm not even going to talk about capital, <laughs> capital returns. We know what the share prices are today. I'm only talking about the incoming aspects. Uh, so dividends for Telstra, 28 cents back then. Dividend for REA Group, 10 cents. Okay, so the yield in 2009 was 7.3% for Telstra off the back of that 28 cent dividend and $3.80 share price. Dividend yield for REA Group was only 2.8%. If you put $10,000 into each, in terms of income that year, you got $731 of income from Telstra and you only got $278 of income from REA Group. Mm. Fast forward to the present. What's happened to that dividend uh, between the two companies and what's happened to the cumulative uh, income and the dividend yield you're, you're experiencing now? So for Telstra, we've had compound dividend growth of minus 5% per annum over the 12 years they are now only paying a dividend of 16 cents a share. We started out at 28 cents a share in 2009. That gives you a yield on original investment of 4%. And the income generated from your ownership of Telstra last year was 418 bucks. Your cumulative income over the uh, 11, 12 years of owning Telstra for that $10,000 you put in in January 2009 is a little over $8,200, okay? Let's switch to REA Group. So REA Group, the dividend growth for REA Group since 2009 has been 24% per annum. Its dividend it pays now is $1.10. The yield you have on your original investment is 31%. The income you generated last year from owning that $10,000 worth of uh, original REA shares is $3,000 for the year. That compares to $418 for the year in Telstra. But more importantly, your cumulative dividends only REA group is $21,000 over this 11-year period versus $8,200 for Telstra. Now, which one generated the more income? <laughs> it's pretty clear REA generating $21,000 of cumulative dividends to you has generated $13,000 more than the 8,200 Telstra's generated to you. Um, and that's a great example of the relationship between income and dividends and growth. And I haven't even talked about the 140 bucks of capital appreciation. Yeah, you didn't oh, have your okay. CSL, which is probably the easier yeah, well, to do. That, that would be our example. <laughs> what PE did you have to pay for the two at the time? Uh, you would have always more, been on right? about a sixteen it would have times been, PE, hasn't it? It would have been the REA Group would have been 70, 80 times PE. So, so that, in that, that order that's of magnitude. The interesting thing in our portfolios, and you know, as a, a investment manager. You, you grow and learn uh, with years. And, you know, we've always run more classically trained, if you like. Our, our founder, you know, founder of the business, 1973, really conservative guy, always look at uh, value-based investments, never pay too much, never pay PE over above the market. And where we've really got our growth from 
is offshore, right? So offshore, we've we've invested in heavily, always the growth, provided the majority of growth portfolio. Domestically, when you can see stocks, a lot of groups go through this, PE is too high, right? So has that always been your, and I'm probably off target already, Drew, sorry, um, but is that always been your world? Is that, have you come up, have, were you born like this, Dushko, and went, hey, I really love things that grow? Or how did you get to this kind of mindset that you go, it's not really about what I pay today, it's what I get over, a, you know, over a 10-year period or a three-year period? Yeah, great question. I think the fundamental reason you want to own equities is growing cash flows. Okay, yeah. why do you want to own equity and take on a whole lot more risk than owning a bond mm. and, and, and owning that to maturity and getting your coupon back and the running yield in between uh, A and B? The reason, and it, all you get is a fixed coupon, right? It doesn't grow. So that's, that's the fixed income investment alternative. So you're owning equity. <laughs> you need to get compensated for more risk. What compensates you for that is growth in cash flow. That growth in cash flow is driven off strong revenue growth, strong earnings growth, and therefore the capacity to also pay dividends in some respect. Uh, although we really do favour businesses who are generating a high return on capital to reinvest the majority back into their business and defend and extend the uh, growth runway and competitive advantage. Um, and so the way that we're able to um, assess the market and find what we see as good value opportunities is a discounted cash flow approach in terms of valuation. So we're discounting the future cash flows of each company we're analyzing, and we analyze over 200 companies in really strong detail, uh, full PL uh, cash flow balance sheet uh, modeling. How, how far are you? Yeah, so we explicitly forecast the next 10 years, and then we fade to steady state uh, thereafter. And uh, it's the DCF valuation discipline that I've always had uh, through my career that enables me to see value uh, where others don't. And I mean, especially some of these tech companies, you know, almost the most useless question to ask a tech company as it's growing in, in its early growth phase and uh, as it's going through break even is what the PE is, because the PE will be some high number. Of course. You know, it, it has even simply the accounting of, um, of um, these stocks PEs. is different to the accounting of um, traditional industrial companies. You know, you're a car manufacturer, you, you build a new plant, uh, you depreciate it over 20 years, so it hits the P&L at 5% per annum in terms of depreciation charge. You're a tech company like Zero, growing your accounting subscribers, all of your costs are up front. Okay, you're, you're expensing 60% of your R&D and all of your customer acquisition costs are expensed up front. So even the accounting is distorted, you know, um, your costs are early and upfront, uh, and then your future revenues, uh, you're able to grow your subscriber base without actually requiring a whole lot of additional costs. So you get tremendous leverage in margins once you pass through your break-even because you've upfronted all of your R&D and a lot of your uh, customer acquisition costs. And so your earnings look depressed early on. So the PE question is almost the most irrelevant question you can ask. It's, mm. are you... Uh, the leader and category killer in in your sector. Uh, what Will is the total one? address? Yeah. What is the total addressable market? Um, how sticky are your customers? And what is the uh, ARPU? You know, the average revenue per month per user, uh, and what the churn rate is going forward? Because all of those things drive 
your future cash flows, which we're discounting back yep. uh, to today and finding a, a DCF uh, valuation target. And that's how we can see value in some some companies that are you know, break even or loss by making, um, but have tremendous future value uh, uh, potential. Um, and and it's not always the case, but you've got to be, you know, you, if you're in the sweet spot and you've got something distinctive, you can really stand out. And has that model changed over time? So, like, you, I think you've held Afterpay. You hold Afterpay now. You've probably been in and out of it over time. But it was a, probably a different story initially and then it, it evolved and changed and grew even quicker and slowed and had different challenges. Does a, does a DCF kind of adjust to the different life cycle of, of tech or not just tech but growth companies throughout all those sectors? And it does. does. discount yes. rate hurt you if it's too far out? Yeah, so the, the discount rate is not something we play around with. Okay, so we're very disciplined in terms of our discount rate. We don't use you know, what the current 10-year bond yield is. You know, we use a conservative 3.5% um, discount rate. Okay. And we don't want valuation to be driven by our modelling input in terms of discount rate. Now, we, we understand that the market and some participants can use the spot rate and it enters market pricing. That's, we understand that, the mechanics of the market. That's what makes a market. Some people use very large discount rates that are you know, 5%, uh, very unrealistic back to a world that other people will ever return to. Some people use spot and uh, over-extrapolate you know, whatever the current discount rate is. We, you know, we, we're in the middle. We use a, you know, what we think is the most likely discount rate over the medium term. The point being is beta and changes in discount rate are not what we want to drive value. It's cash flows. Okay, it's your growth in your future cash, current cash flows and future cash flows. They're the things that change through time. They're the things that should be driving your valuation. And just specifically on, on Afterpay, you know, we've owned it for circa four years. We've owned it all the way through, Drew. Um, it's not something we've traded uh, mm-hmm. at all. And we just thought that it had a you know, really distinctive uh, product. So the key was understanding the product. The product resonated both to customers retail customers, but also retail merchants, okay? So it had a wonderful two-sided network where it brought together consumers and merchants or retailers. The economics uh, made sense for each of the two parties. And so we had a a very cohesive two-sided network, which is in fact what attracted uh, Square to Afterpay in its um, takeover bid. Yep. And and the other thing that was really important was um, just the economics, the unit economics, um, just because it had very uh, high capital turnover. So because people were paying off um, their purchases every two weeks, it meant that you didn't have a whole lot of capital outlay there for very long. And you had so very short duration, high turnover in your asset base, which meant that you generated that 2.3% margin over and over and over again through the year. Uh, and it's just the mechanics of how you uh, work out a return on invested capital, which was very attractive. Now, you, know, you needed to understand the management. You needed to understand the products. We did extensive um, interviews with uh, prospective and existing uh, merchant clients. We understood the consumer proposition very well ourselves, and we were able to model it and put it together in such a way um, that our DCF kit was always north of uh, where the share price was. So when we first bought the stock, it was circa eight nine dollars. We had a price target of sixteen dollars. You know, extremely attractive. You know, twice twice what we paid was our valuation. As the business uh, evolved, it grew much more quickly than even our expectations. And so when, you know, when the share price was 25 bucks, our DCF was 35. When the share price was $50, our DCF was $80 and so on. And you know, our current DCF, even without the square bid, 
is a one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, so you know, even even now, on its own, it's got uh, quite a bit of upside. And I think now that it folds into Square, uh, should that be successful, you effectively become a Square shareholder. So you know, we've we've flipped the switch on becoming Square analysts now and yep. um, done a whole lot of work modelling out that company. Still fits in your Aussie equity portfolio, or does that change to your global team at some point? No, actually, it's a really good question. Um, it will re- it will retain an ASX listing, uh, and when we look at the liquidity factors, um, its index weight will only fall. I think it's from about, it's about one hundred and ten basis points now. It'll fall to sort of eighty basis points. So it'll still have a decent weighting in the ASX index, uh, and we very much intend to remain ongoing investors. We think it's quite attractive. Um, unit economics are quite attractive for afterpay within Square, and we we quite like what Square is doing. Um, and we think it could be continue to be an investment that's in the portfolios for years to come. That psychological, me, sorry. oh sorry, I was on the psychological side. You know, your DCF kept increasing. A lot of people sell things too early, particularly growth yeah. stocks. How do you stop yep. yourself from doing that? Is there a, is there some sort of protection? <laughs> no, I I would have sold it at, once I tripled my money probably. Yeah, <laughs> and it went up another tenfold. So, well, it's a great question, Drew, and we see we do see it a lot in the competitors. It comes back to the depth of the work and the bespoke research that we do in understanding the business model, understanding the management and the board, uh, and then being able to model that um, really well in a spreadsheet and come up with like a a disciplined process that that we repeat year after year, stock after stock. I've been doing this for over 25 years. And it's a process we can trust because we've seen it work before. And it's not to say you don't make mistakes and we, we will all clearly make mistakes, but it is a process that's worked year in, year out. Uh, for over a quarter of a century. So we trust the process and the modeling and um, the valuation work that we do. And it goes back to, you know, some investors can identify parts of what's attractive to an investment, but not have that final piece of being able to forecast well and value the stock properly. And it's those instances where you've picked up that this is a better mousetrap and there's something distinctive about it, but you don't necessarily know how to value that earnings stream and the future earnings stream. And so when it triples or quadruples, you go, how good is this? I've made my money. I'll, I'll take, take it off the table because I, if I sell now, I can't lose what I've already made. Uh, but that means you've missed the dimension to the job. The dimension of the job is more than just being able to identify a good idea, a good product, a good service, or a good management team. It's also being able to financially model that, forecast that, and value that, and then apply quite a disciplined process around sorting out um, amongst the 300 stocks listed on the ASX, which are the 30 that should be in our concentrated portfolio and what kind of active weights they should be. So you need that extra dimension to be able to do that as well. How big is your team, uh, Dushko? How many people do you, do you have helping you across First Centia to be able to execute a process that is, you know, well-structured, um, thoughtful, do the work, and I'll get on to why I'm asking this question. Um, yeah, it's a good question. It doesn't happen with one person, I can, I can rest assured. Um, I'm really fortunate to be part of a 10-person investment team. Uh, so eight of us are portfolio managers and analysts, and we've got a dedicated two-person quant team that run all of our databases and screening and uh, our models. So that's uh, all, all the tech and spreadsheets sing and dance and can do everything we want. We can slice and dice the numbers any which way we like and, and be really on top of where our, our numbers are versus uh, the market. Uh, the key thing is the eight 
uh, portfolio managers and analysts. Um, now six of us have two to three decades of experience, so deeply experienced team. Means we've been through many cycles, um, and we've um, you know, deployed this investment process consistently through that time. And so we can we've learned through through time, and we can trust the process. Uh, but it also means we've got an exceptional rolodex of industry contacts. You know, there is no management or team or board board in Australia, corporate Australia, that won't meet with us um, at the at the at our request. So you know, we can reach literally get on the phone and have a meeting with any board or, or any management team in Australia. And we command that kind of response because of the res mutual respect we have for each other. And that comes from the depth and quality of work we do. So we truly understand the businesses, not only that we invest in, but that we potentially invest in and research. And so the quality of our Q&A and our meetings is at such a high level that we actually can learn from each other. So the, you know, the CEO, CFO, line manager or board are actually having a fruitful interaction where we are actually learning from each other. And so we get really high uh, hit rates on, like I said, on, on those meetings and deep engagement. You know, we even give companies advice when they need it. Um, there's some great examples of that as well. And um, yeah, we're trying to always 10 people in Aussie equities, isn't it? Say again, sorry? Just Aussie equities, isn't it? That team, team of yes. 10? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're just looking at the Aussie equities universe. Uh, but we, we supplement that. So, I mean, you've, you've also got to know what you don't know. Mm, important sure. to identify everything you do know, but just as important to, to understand and identify what it is you don't know. And the way we plug that gap to the extent that's possible is we really extensively use um, an independent ex expert network. They're called Gershon Lehman Group, GLG, and they put us in touch with many people who are in the industry of a particular company that we're researching, people who are working currently in unlisted competitors uh, or who have worked previously with unlisted competitors or who have worked you know, many years ago in the, in the company that we're uh, researching and trying to understand forecast and value. And so we're actually getting insights from people who have lived, eat, live, eat, and breathe the industry and the, that the stock is in. So we get genuine insights, not just you know, a bunch of um, you know, finance graduates sure. running a spreadsheet, uh, trying to work out what the future margin will be. We actually access industry participants, which is so important. And we, you know, we test whether we're getting BS, frankly, excuse the language, whether the management team and board are selling us some BS. We go out there and test every proposition uh, with someone in the industry who's competing with them or worked with them uh, or has expertise, uh, you know, where it's engineering expertise, if it's a, you know, something to do with mining or, or um, expertise in terms of uh, biomedical research, um, you know, new products, uh, how viable they are or not, what, interpreting um, trial results. We don't leave those kind of things to chance. So we, we, the things we don't know, we learn and we bring in experts and we don't just talk to one expert because they, you know, they also can bring their own biases. We always do a dozen to 20 calls. And once you do that many calls, you, with the experience that we've got and, and the base knowledge we've got, we can really pinpoint where we're at, whether this, is, whether this claim has, is bona fide or is overstated or is completely fraudulent. Um, so we just, 
really focused in on bespoke research and not just running spreadsheets and not just talking to brokers on what the latest rumor is or what the fashion is at the moment. It's actual real on the ground research is what we pride ourselves in. And that's because you're high conviction, aren't you? You're only picking 30 companies. You want to know them inside out. Exactly. Whereas I think a lot of retiree portfolios could have 15 stocks that they consider, you know, 30 is high conviction and 15 is diversified in view of a lot of people. So it's kind of, um, yeah, interesting take. And so with uh, growth stocks and growth CEOs, they're typically different cats, right? They, we, we talk about this a lot, that to, 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 to have a, and maybe growth and startup gets mixed up, but, yeah. you know, to, to come, if, if you're going to see a CEO, I, I really I, um, you know, read a lot about this recently, you know, a really good growth CEO is, is so committed into and, and believe 100% in what they're doing. They're nearly a sociopath in their approach, right? Mm. They're, they're, they're committed. And if you looked at through another lens, you would say, well, basically you run a really crap business. And you're going to run out of money in three <laughs> months time. You know, we'll, we'll start selling stuff. You have to have a conviction, right? And when you meet these people, there's a lens I assume you look at them through and say, all right, are they committed? Are they truthful? Do they need capital for a long period of time? Um, and you might assess that a CEO that will take you through a growth um, train, maybe that's for the first five years, is a different CEO than the next five years. Do you, do you yep. kind of judge and value, and maybe my question's not really well articulated, but you know, do, you, do you assess the person? And even if they, they might meet all your filters, you understand why they're there and why that company will be successful? Absolutely. I understand all dimensions of that question. Um, and the, and it, clearly you've got companies that are up and running and profitable. That's, a, that's a, one set of companies. Then you've got what you described early on is the startup set of companies. And um, then they need to be very passionate, driven and entrepreneurial. And there's an element of you need to, you know, your story can't be a secret as well. You know, there's an element of having to be promotional, mm-hmm. um, but it's not, I mean, that, that applies broadly. It's not only growth companies. I'll give you some great examples. So let's talk about a business that's up and running. It's always been profitable. IPO'd in 2005. That's Domino's Pizza that we all know. John May, probably one of the best CEOs I'll ever meet in my career. Passion, energy, honesty, focus is out of this world. Um, and, you know, he drives that business like no one else would. And he's... He was uh, a franchisee himself, led by example, was won all the awards you can win uh, in the domino system globally uh, for franchisee success uh, in terms of growing stores, growing revenue, growing profitability, but also de- generating a great product um, and improving the product through the process. So he's the ultimate CEO who leads by example. So all the franchisees know that he's, he was the number one Domino's franchisee in his early years. And so he drives that business, you know, very strongly uh, with great discipline, great focus. And he he lives, eats, and breathes the product, the the company. There's there's nothing else he thinks about. I mean, I, I bumped into him at uh, a brief period. We could travel, and I and I went down to Melbourne in May of May of this year. I met him um, at Sydney Airport, and he's he's pitching to me like it was an IPO. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. up through through, you know, we bought it. I was at a different business in 2005. We bought it and owned it all the way from the IPO all the way through. We've owned the stock all the way through. 
uh, different weightings through that period, but, you know, basically owned the stock all the way through. And he's still pitching to me like he's IPLing tomorrow. <laughs> um, so just passion is out of this world, but also capability. Um, now, when it comes to uh, sort of businesses that are going through uh, a startup phase or through break-even, I'll use maybe zero as a good example. Um, what's really important is part of your competitive advantage, something you need to attract for your business to work in the medium to long term is a low cost of capital. Okay, having a low cost of capital mm. is actually a competitive advantage because okay, you need to be able to, to, you're not making a return on that capital yet. So the, the lower your cost of capital can be, the better your future cash flows will be. The less shares on issue there will be, the less people you've got to share those future earnings and cash flows with. And so for businesses to prosper, especially in tech land, you need a low, low cost of equity. What does a low cost of equity mean? It means a high yeah. PE or a high, you haven't got an E yet, you haven't got earnings yet, high price to sales. Um, so you actually need that to get the capital at a low cost and outcompete your competitor set. So yep. there's an element of the that's required in the CEO that's promotional, okay, for you to be able to track that capital at a low cost, for you to actually deploy your business plans, develop your product, um, go out there and, and acquire your customers, which costs money. Um, Elon Musk, who are they the biggest yes. issuer of like um, preferred uh, US preference shares, aren't they, or converting? Converting yeah. preference shares over in the US. Yeah, but it's not just tech. I, I go back to you know Twiggy. Okay, back in yeah. his early days on Fortescue, we were the first uh, institutional shareholder on the register of Fortescue in the mid. I can't remember exact date now, but the mid two thousands. Sure. We were the first one who got on the plane and flew over um, Cloudbreak and uh, Christmas Creek hmm. uh, as 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 it was being developed. As BHP and Rio were poo pooing uh, yeah, the technology out. and the resource. Oh, continuous miners, they never work. Um, the costs are wrong. They'll never make a dollar. Uh, yeah, mind you, they all use continuous miners, including BHP and Rio for certain mm. resorts. They, they copied all the, I mean, actually, Fortescue developed some tech and it was, it's been copied by BHP and Rio. But if you listen to the propaganda of the time, you wouldn't have put a cent into it. But we backed him as an entrepreneur. We backed the engineers that were behind him. It was very good engineering detail done by Wally, especially who we were also invested in at the time, which gave us confidence in terms of the mind design and the planning. But he was promotional. There was an element of promotionalism, entrepreneurial sure. um, promotion of the stock, but he needed it to get the capital. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have got the capital and the history would be different. So, um, you know, it's, so long as there's credibility um, behind the business and the management team, an element of promotionalism is not something you should shy away from. Having said that, there's a whole heap of white shoe brigaders you want to run away from because they're just trying to fleece you. So I've just another question you, too. I've given you just a couple of really successful examples, and I've omitted. And you, don't be, you don't want to be sued. I've, so. I've omitted 450 crooks that we said sure. no to. Yeah, yeah, I like it. What's the sort of hurdle? So you, you're talking about backing companies early. What's the? Do you have a hurdle rate within your portfolio that you're expecting? You know, is it? 10, you want a 10% per annum for every everything you, you own. Uh, I know you you don't have a target return like that, but... Yeah, I, I think if you explicitly target something like that, quite often you don't actually get great outcomes, yeah. uh, ironically. It's just like, I don't know, look at your own 
history of investing personally. Don't look at mine. <laughs> and I, I look at my own and mind you, we, we can't own any Aussie stocks because it's a conflict of interest. It's all offshore that I can own. And, and I own tons of, I put tons of my money into the funds uh, that we manage. But um, anything you ever do for a tax reason <laughs> almost always works out to be the wrong decision. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Just think, I, I can't tell you how many times if you did something purely for a tax reason, it ends up being in the, in the, in the fullness of time, one of the dumbest things you've ever done. Yeah. The same thing applies to I'm targeting a 10% return or a 12% return or whatever return you're doing. When you're sort of forcing that outcome, what happens is you often don't process information factually. And the biggest danger in funds management, and I see it all the time, and we try and protect against it all the time in terms of behavior, is you see what you want to see. Okay. So once you set out your cart for a 10% return, you look at everything through that prism and the things that are lower, you, you tend to uprate and the things yeah. that have got higher growth, you tend to downrate because you concentrate. It's almost just, you know, you're just targeting one thing. And so what you do is you miss out on bandwidth. You miss out on comparing uh, companies uh, for their attributes because you're narrowing down to one criteria. You, you become less open-minded, which I think is so important. Open-mindedness in this day and age more than ever is really important. And, and But the biggest trap of all is you, get, you tend to see what you want to see rather than what is actually the most likely outcome. So what we really do is we we just model the P&L, the cash flows and balance sheet of each company on the basis of what the most likely outcome is for, for revenue, for costs, for earnings, for cash flows, for you know, capital uh, requirements. Um, and then we value that through our DCF, our discounted cash flow evaluation template, which we trust because we've, re we've really been running this for a long time. Um, and it does a great job in ranking um, yep. where the so return opportunities are. I assume from, yeah. the, from the best to the worst. Yep. And since you're running a concentrated strategy, do you just pick the top 30 or do you go, here's the stocks that potentially we should look out out of the I don't know, 60 or 80 and then we apply a qualitative screen over top, not just numbers? Yeah, so just to give you a, a, the level of work we do, we have a quantitative screen where we pick up 500 companies. So okay. I'm, I'm very passionate about broad ideas universe. You know, have a big universe of potential ideas. Yep. Uh, so we just pick that up in our database. We then model in detail about 200 companies. So we sort of pick the eyes out of that. Uh, do you mind universe? So we, we obviously all our clients are mums and dads, right? Um, yep. So when we say quant screen, you and I, Drew, we, we get that. Do you want to just explain yes. to to kind of our our clients what a quant screen means? Yeah, great, great, great point. So we've got a big database, and we pick up on every stock that's listed in Australia. If there's available forecast data that, put, that you know, stock brokers are forecasting, for example, uh, of course, we've got all the historicals as well um, of every company that's ever reported. And we collect about 100 uh, data fields, you know, revenue, costs, EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax and depreciation, uh, EBIT, tax rate, earning, you know, profit, profit per share, uh, all of the cash flow items, uh, free cash flow, um, and of course, you know all of the ratios, return on equity, all the return numbers. on assets, all the numbers, all the uh, vital details um, and uh, financial numbers we look at and forecast that drives 
what the value of a company is. And then we look at what's most interesting out of that uh, set of opportunities. And then we actually do our own work and we do a heap of blood, sweat and tears, wear our shoe leather, do all those kind of calls that I've talked about and research in massive detail those 200 companies where we think represent the biggest and best opportunities um, for us to invest our client funds. And the, the pure purpose is generating you know, returns above the index uh, from you know 30-odd stocks uh, in a concentrated portfolio. So p- picking the best 30, but it's not just the 30 highest returning, it's you know adjusting for risk and return. Okay, so you have to add, uh, filter in risk into this equation, into the, um, you know, it's not just the numerator return, it's also the denominator, you know, how much risk are you taking to generate that return? Because we're investing, we're not punting. This is not punting. This is professional investment at scale for a real purpose. The real purpose is growing the wealth of our clients decade over decade over decade in a reliable fashion in a way where they can get on with pursuing their employment and generating their income and running their business and running their family and living their lives and their savings can be pooled and invested with a fund such as ours in a way where they can sleep at night, where putting tremendous resource and research and effort into identifying the opportunities, we're trying to get the best you know, we're optimizing the returns. We're trying to you know, get well above what the average is, compound year in, year out. And then over a span of 30 years, you know, you, you can be earning four or five times more than the average if you're patient and you can trust the people you're investing with. Now, the biggest thing from my, from my perspective is trust. Okay, when it comes to investing, you really have to trust your advisor and your partners in terms of who you're investing with. And when these people are there for the right purpose, we're here to generate wealth for you. That is our purpose. We want you to be able to live a dignified lifestyle, a great lifestyle once you stop working. That's the purpose of compounding these returns year in, year out. Sounds like our but, pitch. That's, yeah. <laughs> and that's what you oh, miss with brilliant. investing for income as well, isn't it? Where you're, not, yes. you're just pulling income out, you know, compounding you can't compound profits when they just get paid out every year or 90% of them anyway. The greatest um, example is Telstra and REA Group. Um, I mean, REA Group just destroys it on income, let alone what you got on capital. And it's people miss the relationship between uh, growth and income. And if I could just, can I just give you one anecdote? Um, it might be interesting. So uh, like I said, I've been doing this job for over 25 years. My old boss uh, and my early mentor and mentor through a, a great part of my career uh, sent me a WhatsApp message yesterday afternoon. <laughs> He's retired and happily retired. Uh, and, he, uh, and if I could just read out the uh, WhatsApp exchange, and, and, and it really encapsulates what I think people make a mistake when it comes to thinking about income, the income part of your investing. Sure. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you should ignore income, but I think people think about income the wrong way. They tend to pile into what I call yield traps in the equity market. It's almost like doing something for a tax reason. Like night follows day, if all you ever do is go and try and find the stock that yields 10%, I guarantee you it's about to have a monster profit, profit downgrade and a huge capital raising. Because once the market's pricing you at a 10% yield, sure. the risk is through the roof. You don't get a 10% apparent yield for nothing. It, you, you're, you're heading into a storm of risk. 
right? I guarantee you. So the, the better way of thinking about income is I think as follows. So Tim asked me, um, would you buy a three-year Fortescue bond at 7.5% yield? My answer, wouldn't be top of my list, but I don't see any issues with buying that, especially as it, as it is three-year duration. Thanks. Tim says to me, thanks, not top of my list either, but yield is in very short supply, as you know. I say to him, well, you know what? A three-year bond for Fortescue is pretty close to a three-year bond for the Australian government in terms of what generates the revenues. The, the difference is uh, you get 700 basis points more yield. Because the Aussie three-year sovereign is 50 basis points for a three-year Aussie note, treasury note. Uh, you get 750 for Fortescue, and I reckon you're running the same risk. I reckon in three years' time, the chance of uh, Australia returning your principal back to you is the same as Fortescue <laughs> returning your principal back to you, but you're getting 700 points more. So I think that's the way you should think about risk. And the reason why that's the case is the cost for Fortescue out of the mine for iron ore is 15 bucks a tonne. Currently, iron ore price, even though it's halved, it's 120 bucks a tonne. So they're making $105 a tonne, even with a price halving. They Why do they have debt. to pay 7% for the debt then? It seems... It's mispriced. <laughs> yeah. Okay, it was, it's completely mispriced. There is no way that that business won't pay you mm. back your principal. Well, they wouldn't compare, care about a credit rating or anything, so they... No, and so Tim's question is the pertinent one. His answer, brilliant, thanks. I gave him all the costs. I gave him all the gearing ratios. And, um, and he, he was like, yep, I'm buying it. So this is, not, <laughs> this is not investment advice, by the way. We've got to do the disclaimer. But um, the point is, he's going to hold this three-year bond to maturity. Yeah, yeah. All you need to uh, assess in this scenario is, will you get your money back in three years' time? Are they a good credit? I would say absolutely. They're as good a credit, I think, as the Aussie government. Plus, you're getting 7% percentage points more of yield. Mm. So you can find yield there. But if you go and try and find 7.5% or 10% in the equity market, you're buying a really dodgy stock. Well, we've, we've seen that in the majority of products that have been launched in the last you know, three to five years that are income focused and their strategy haven't taken consideration the capital element. So they've lost more capital than the income they've produced. So net, net, not much. I just want to turn, um, and it's not on our agenda, but... What you've just highlighted before reminds me of a couple of things that we, you know, as advisors we see is um, you have to invest through incredible amounts of noise. Um, and at the moment, there's been, there hasn't been a time where there's more noise. So markets were dead last April. Everyone was sitting on 20 or 30% losses. Some funds were sitting on 70 or 80% losses. Fast forward 15 months. Everyone, a super, everyone is a superstar. Everyone's on Twitter. Everyone is saying, hey, our five-year numbers are phenomenal. Um, and, you know, so therefore, to try to stay focused as a long-term investor, long-term advisor, long-term portfolio manager, it's hard, right? Because the noise is high and you're getting these groups that are playing with numbers or they're one-man bands mm. or they're you know, saying, oh, look, we're better than Magellan, but they've just had a, crack, a massive one year. And the other four have been rubbish where yeah, Magellan, yeah. not you, but Magellan, they've had a pretty good 
consistent period of time, right? So yeah. do you guys suffer from the noise element? I assume everyone is pitching Dushko a new idea going, Dushko, look at this. I need to raise capital. Is there lots of noise in your world? And how do you stay focused? And how would my investors or Drew and I's clients stay focused? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, it's a it's a discipline that we've got. We we tend not to spend too much time with brokers because um, we call them time thieves. Um, so to the extent they're relevant, we we interact with them, but we, you know, we don't invest in too many IPOs. We invest in some IPOs here and there, and um, we are actually looking at a couple quite interesting ones at the moment, hmm. uh, which is unusual. But we you, you know, we're known we're known in the market as a tough marker on that front and, and simply because there's 200 other stocks that we're researching in detail that we know really intimately well hmm. that are alternatives for our capital and for our, our clients' capital. Uh, unless we get really confident uh, on the opportunity and we've been able to do the work and it's compelling, it's quite often the case that, you know, you, you should just put your money in one of those other 200 stocks that you know quite well. So that's how you sort of – there's a – how do you keep away from the noise? It's discipline and competition. Okay, so we've got 36 stocks in the portfolio, most of the time, you know, 25 to 30 stocks, but there's always 10 to 15 knocking on the door, keeping the 30 in the portfolio honest. Yeah. Okay, same with uh, all this noise that you talk about. We do all the work and all the research and we do tons of macro work as well, but our focus is on best of breed, those 30 stocks in the portfolio. They're the competition for every one of these potential investment ideas and we're ranking it against the existing portfolio and the 10 knocking on on the drawer of the portfolio and the way you uh, clarify the noise professionally from our perspective is trusting the process because we've got this ranking Hmm. of returns and we have an understanding of the risk incorporated in generating these dcf price targets we know we can slot in a new idea or a new invested opportunity and compare it immediately both against the existing portfolio but against all the stocks we're researching and where it fits. You know, is it the 35th best idea, the second best idea, or the 150th best idea? And when you can generate this work, and it's a volume of work over a long period of time from all the analysts in terms of understanding their companies and all the contacts and all the knowledge we put into our forecast evaluation, that's what clarifies for us professionally what we should be focused on versus what's just a shiny new toy. It seems like that risk um, side is the, you know, everyone can predict great returns, but understanding the risk is, seems to be where you guys kind of stand out, whether it's management risk or sector risk or capital risk. It has many dimensions, Drew. You're, you're yeah. spot on. It's not just one dimension. But I think what what can possibly, I think there is something quite interesting happening in the market right now that I think is unsettling people. Um, and when you say, you know, peak noise, I, I really do understand where that sentiment comes from. And what I, my observation that I'd share on that is right now, repricing of stocks is the quickest I've ever seen in 25 years. Okay. And what do I mean by that? I don't think it's necessarily the market's more short-term. I wouldn't characterise it that way, although I've heard a lot of people characterise it that way. I think that's missing the extra dimension of understanding what's going on now. It's more that very in a very short period of time, the medium-term prospects for every company are being priced 
really quickly. Okay, so you've got a lot of flicking between value and growth type investing this year. It's swapping very quickly. Uh, everybody loves to put on the stagflation, inflation trade. It's the most loved trade in the market by an easy sell. so much. It's not, you, know, you know how you know? Within a week of any prospect of that being true, it gets priced. Like it, you get a 25% change in stocks that are going to do well in inflation versus stocks that don't do well in inflation. It happens in a week. Like it's the fastest rotation of capital I've ever experienced. Okay. And there's a little bit, there's some prospects for that happening, although we think it's um, something that's transitory, which therefore when these things whipsaw, that's your opportunity. You know, when these things sell off, we buy them. When people think we're in a stagflation environment or a huge inflation environment, that's when we, we give it to those people, we sell it to them. So you're very careful not to get whipsawed in this market. We're actually very contrarian on the price moves in terms of what we're doing in the portfolio because the pricing is so quick and the market loves to put this trade on. And the reason the market loves to put this trade on, especially, I mean, globally, but especially in Australia, is most investors are value investors. And drum roll, a bit of sound effects. I don't know if you can hear it. Drum roll. We'll add it later. You see what you want to see. Going back to my early adage, this is what most investors want sure. to see because it helps their portfolio. So when you see what you want to see, you just grab it and run with it like you wouldn't believe. Now, here's what you need to do as a professional investor. Step away from the emotion, park your ego on the curbside and analyze what is the most likely outcome. See what you see, which is kind of like noise, right? So yeah. I remember when I first... I, Straight out of university, I went to a AMP financial planning firm, and on day one, he gave me the prospectus of the AMP Flexi Super Fund, and he said, "Hey, read this from start to end." And it had yeah. all the investment options. And I went into his office and said, "Can you help me with the return profile? Because on the top right-hand side of each fund, it had <laughs> their returns, and for some, it had one, three, and seven; others, it had from inception. The next one, it had just the two-year number." And he went, well, they only promote what you want to see, yeah, what, what, what essentially will help you yeah. with their funnel. And that still kind of goes on, you know, that enormous amount of noise, uh, picking up, you know, specific things to justify your position, you know, reconfirm your opinion. It, it, it's very alive and well at the moment, I think. Oh, I think you're right. And the only way to sift through that is look at every return period. One, three, five, seven, ten since inception. Mm. Um, and understand the periods in which they did well and didn't do well and who was running the show through those periods and uh, is the team there that generated those returns and can you trust and rely on the, these um, fund managers in these funds to continue replicating that through time? I have one last question. Oh, sorry. I've got 12. Trillion. I've got 12. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, it was, it's, going, it's kind of going to that inflation risk because, you know, the headlines you're talking about are the same we all see, which is higher rates, growth stocks down. You know, it's mm. this simple relationship, which I was reading a paper the other day um, that kind of breaks it down. It's not that simple. You know, talking about, you know, if a company is able to grow margins or profits more than the increase in the discount rate, is is that something you you agree with and you build into your model as well? That you know, inflation and rates aren't that important to. They'll be short term, but yeah. Look, it touches on something that I 
that I haven't been had, had a chance to say, which is such a big part of our process. And that is, and this is great, I think, sort of um, advice for individual investors as well, is just focus on what I call compounders. Okay, so we love to sprinkle very liberally in our portfolio, and especially in our larger active positions, stocks that we call compounders, companies that can grow year in, year out and largely run their own race relatively independently of the underlying economy. Okay, so compounders are a thing of beauty, something that you want to own. And the reason why is these companies don't have to re-win their business every year. Okay, these business are, businesses are dominant. They win their customers. Their customers just pile in every year and everything they're doing is growing that customer base and their product and their product features and their services to increase their customers. So there's no volatility year in, year out. You know, you've got mining companies, you know, whatever the iron ore price or the copper price or the gold price or the lithium price is, that can move around. That, you know, that, there's a lot of risk there. That can move around. It's very difficult to forecast. But I'll give you an example. Like Woolies, Woolworths is a compounder. Mm. Okay? Uh, zero is a compounder. It grows its accounting subscriber base year in, year out reliably. It doesn't matter what happens in the underlying economy. We've just seen it go through the pandemic. It just reliably grows its subscriber base is it year in, year out. To be a compounder if you're younger, you know, if you, you know, you're 20 years, you've, you've been founded within the last 20 years, you've got a, you've thought about the product, you've got a big addressable audience, it's kind of coupon invoiced or paid, you know, your capital likes. So if you look at Telstra, really, Telstra been around for 100 years in that example, and REA been around maybe 10, capital light can expand really quickly, using yep. digital remarket, not all the all the issues that you have with some of these other businesses, there a tendency to have compounders in younger businesses than older businesses, or is that how well, I see a, the world through it? It's a good question. I think it, there is some skew in that direction, but it doesn't mean that there aren't compounders in businesses that have been around forever. And I'll give you an example. Even within banks, you can make, you can, it's really simple. There's only one compounder. That's Commonwealth Bank of Australia. It's the one that all my peers don't own. All the, all, the, all the professionals have been underweight for 25 years. I've been overweight for 25 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Yep. They're the ones that grow their housing mortgage market share and grow with the market and outperform the growth in housing credit year in, year out. They are by far head and shoulders the best bank in Australia, best bank in probably Asia. Uh, not to say it's perfect, but... I'd love to be able to put a few charts up here and show you. And we do the yellow line Combank, red line Westpac, blue line uh, ANZ and black line NAB in line with their corporate colour logos. And you go 20 years <laughs> and the yellow line is two and a half times the height of any of the other sure. red, blue or uh, black lines. And it's a compounder, simple Simple, simple concept. Um, yeah, REA is a compounder, Zero is a compounder. But so is James Hardy. You know, it, it, it had a few wobbles um, a couple of years ago, but um, new management came in, set the business back back to its um, you know, normal, normal sort of uh, investing ahead of uh, growth curve and uh, improving its um, plant uh, manufacturing uh, processes. 
and it's back to being a compounder. So, I mean, they're not only in tech, they're not only new companies, although, you know, you do see them, um, in, in a lot of them um, uh, in that sector uh, these days. You know, Wise Tech's a good example, but the Wise Tech as a business has been around for 25 years. Yeah, okay. You know, Zero as a business has been around for, you know, more, well, well over a decade. Um, REA Group's been in, you know, listed for what, 16, 17 years. It founded in 98, 99. Yep. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they're there. You, you can find them. And the, you know what the best thing here is? It takes away the risk, right? Because they've got low volatility in their revenue growth and they've got lower volatility in their earnings. And you know what? You as an individual investor, you don't have to do as much put as much effort into researching them. Like I'll give you an example. Everything that, I mean, most of most of my assets are in the funds I manage, but uh, for a little bit of diversification, I own some individual US stocks and I spend no time on it because I don't have any time <laughs> to devote to it. I just own stocks that I, I never look at their profit results. Yeah. I've owned them for 10, 15, 20 years, something like a Google, and it just yeah, compounds year in, year out. I don't have the time to, to do it. And you know what? It's been a great investment philosophy in that regard, just owning how compounders. Ass- how do you assess a, a good CEO or a good company you've got a great relationship with? And I assume on the morning of and the results come out, um, you get, theoretically, you should get the results the same time as us, uh, as an individual investor. Yep. And when they surprise on a downside... Does that hurt your relationship with their, their management in a way? Uh, not as a matter of course yep. is what I would say. It depends on the detail of what's happened. Um, it only The point where it damages it is, going back to this issue of trust, has there been a breach of trust? You know, has the management or the board misrepresented things? Yep. Um, and have they done so deliberately? That, that's where, you know, the relationships can change or fracture or, be, or you know, become different. Sure. Uh, but is it just the, a result of, you know, normal volatility in its business, an improved competitor that they couldn't foresee um, a set of circumstances um, around having to put a bit more cost in to make the product better and make the business a better business four years down the track? and it cost a little bit more this year and the opportunity came up, you weren't planning on it, but it was the right thing to do, you know, on a four or five of you view. None of those things uh, hurt our relationship. So we're not here for, we're not day traders. We're not here for, you know, tomorrow's trade. Uh, We're here providing capital patiently and investing and reallocating that capital as best we can over the, over the long term. So we, we try and assess how does it change our fundamental forecast? How does it change our revenues, our earnings, our cash flows, our, a forecast on you know ROE, and therefore we filter that into the DCF, and we work out what the new fair value is for the company. You know, might still be the same if it's a if, if it's a short term issue, or if it's you know a material increase in competition or costs. You know, our valuation may change uh, south, and then we you know we just need to reassess whether that capital should still be there, and there's a pathway to returning, or not, or whether it should be somewhere else. Now, where we interact with board and management, it's simply to find out what the underlying truth is and what the most likely um, set of outcomes are over the next 6, 12, 36 uh, months is going to be. And, um, yeah, that's really how we pursue those engagements. Having said that, there's some instances where, 
they should they they you know they score an own goal. You feel and you feel you can help them, and so you know we we do. You feel like you help them. You feel like it's a very solid business, and it will return return to its uh, glory days. And and you actually offer them some guidance and help. And WiseTech's a great example. You know when it got smashed around by that short seller report 12, 18 months ago, which was complete garbage. I mean we we looked at every claim in detail and analyzed it, and and it worked out it was just garbage. Um, but it smashed the share price. It hurt, you know, for quite a while, six, six, six plus months, had the potential to leak into hurting the reputation of the business and the founder. And the founder is Richard White is one of the most honest people you ever meet. Um, there's no bone in his body uh, where he wants to misrepresent things, but he loves his business. So you can um, misunderstand passion for um you know, trying to oversell something and nothing could you actually knew the individual if you actually understood what the company does and what it does for its uh customers you would have a vastly different interpretation but they fell into the trap of having slide packs that were too complicated they had like 80 slide 80 slides in a pack with mm. hundreds of numbers circles and arrows going all over the shop yep. and and that's because richard white's an engineer he's a boffin <laughs> and we went, no, actually, you know what, Richard? You talk about the product like you've designed it and engineered it, which you did, but you talk about the company almost in third person. <laughs> so can we please uh, get the CFO to step up and just talk about the financials of the company um, and present the business in a professional way to the financial analyst community and deliver on, on, um, on some of those um, acquisitions and, um, and get some leverage within your own business that you provide with your products to your customers. And the last result in August was a you know, mon- monumental vindication of, of the business. You know, they converted 18% revenue growth into 100% EPS growth, earnings per share, and 150% growth in cash flow. And we knew the business had it in them. Yep. But we just needed to refocus him. And he actually, we were the first one-on-one after the result and the first 10 minutes he spent profusely thanking us. So this is a guy who's worth 4 or $5 billion <laughs> uh, thanking us for giving, giving him a few guidelines on, look, this is what you need to do. And the way we did it was via the chairman. Hmm. You know, we didn't want to offend the guy. We didn't want to, uh, you know, we told him directly, but we, 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 we not only told him directly, but we also went through the chairman um, and the issue in the business was they had an investor relations person who was uh, a bit off the rails, and um, and they were they were the issue. They were they were yeah. telling Richard the more slides, the more complicated they are, they are the higher the PE you'll get, and it couldn't be further from Shady the truth. Per, per page. Yeah, I mean, how many? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people have paid thirty million bucks for a slide pack. <laughs> I think McKinsey sold the same same slide pack <laughs> to to NAB. Westpac, CBA, and ANZ five times over. Um, (laughs) Simplicity is the key. So, I mean, uh, we could talk all day, and it it sounds like (laughs) you could talk all day as well, but no one's going to listen to it. I love investing. I love investing. (laughs) No one's going to listen to a six-hour podcast of us chatting. Um, But, you know, uh, from Drew and I and Water Partners, really appreciate your time and honesty. This this is really kicks off our retirement series and, you know, the, the message that we get from talking to you and what we want to give to, you know, our um, clients is 
success is around this income plus growth equals total return. It, it's very much, it's still alive in the last third of your retirement. And the G probably doesn't get enough focus in a lot of retiree portfolios. So I think it's been been really good. Um, so on behalf of us, thanks, Dusko, and thanks uh, First Centia for allowing you to come on and chat really honestly with, with us. So Pleasure. Thank thanks, for, thanks for the time and the opportunity. No thanks. problem. And we've I got think... uh, Bill Mitchell, the founder of MMT or Modern Monetary Theory for our next session uh, on Friday. Yeah, so um, all please join us uh, for that. Obviously, it goes a bit deeper and really talking about um, MMT and obviously what he's been talking about for the last 30 years has really been proven over the last couple of years. Now, what does that do to markets and how do you build portfolios in an environment that is MMT? So we're looking forward to that. Um, thanks, Dusko. Thanks, Drew. See you thanks. soon.